My name is Suna Amaz. I'm partner and founder of Volt Capital. I'm redefining VC by investing in the backbone of the new financial system, crypto, and the companies that'll bring crypto to the next billion users. Welcome to The First Close, Carta's podcast about the people who are building next-generation venture capital firms. We interview new voices in venture about their ambitions and challenges as they aim to redefine the industry. At Carta, we help VCs build enduring venture franchises, starting with Fund One. To learn more about how Carta expands access to equity and transforms capital markets, visit us at carta.com. That's C-A-R-T-A dot com. I'm Jessica Strauss, host of The First Close. Today, we interview Suna Amaz, general partner of Vault Capital, an early-stage fund investing in companies bringing cryptocurrency to the next billion users. Suna has always had an entrepreneurial side. As an undergraduate at the University of Michigan, she and a team built a program that went on to be backed by Google and Amazon Alexa. It was also during college that she first became interested in cryptocurrency. After college, Suna joined Elation, a seed stage company. As she describes it, Suna worked at Elation by day and worked on crypto by night. She realized there was very little information available on crypto, so she launched a newsletter, Token Daily, to share information. Token Daily quickly gathered momentum, transforming from a low-profile newsletter to an online platform dedicated to all things crypto. Founders in the crypto space began turning to Token Daily for access to talent and resources, and turning to Suna for guidance on growth. In 2020, Suna decided to found Volt Capital. Suna asserts that crypto is making meaningful advancements, especially over the past year, and Volt is capitalizing on this momentum by investing in innovative founders who recognize the future value of crypto around the globe. Suna has been featured in Forbes 30 Under 30. She has spoken on the South by Southwest State of Crypto panel and has had her accomplishments featured in the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, and TechCrunch. As always, we'll start with our guest slash line, the key stats that make up their unique track record. Let's go into Suna's slash line. In total, Suna has been an early hire or part of the founding team of five venture-backed companies. Token Daily has over 20,000 subscribers, all gained through organic growth. In the four years that Suna has been in the investment world, she's made 16 investments in total, and she serves as an advisor to OnDeck. So Suna, I'm so glad to have you here today as an advisor to OnDeck. So Suna, I'm so glad to have you here today. I'm so excited to talk to you about Volt Capital and everything that you are doing and would love to start out with what you're working on today. Tell us a little bit about Volt Capital. Sure thing. Thanks for having me on, Jessica. I'm excited to be doing this today with you. So Volt Capital is a firm that I co-founded and we generally focus on infrastructure companies in crypto. So this is a little contrarian because we aren't directly investing in tokens. We aren't a hedge fund. We're looking at the strong equity companies that are being built in crypto. that are helping crypto cross the chasm. And oftentimes this looks like end user services, digital asset intermediaries, or open finance tools. 
But that at a very high level is what we're focused on. And we manage capital on behalf of family offices, firms, and strategic investors. You've been thinking about helping crypto cross the chasm, so to speak, for a long time, especially in crypto years. You went to the University of Michigan, you majored in engineering, and I'd love to hear about some of the early experiences that you had as an undergraduate that influenced where you are now. I've always been entrepreneurial, and I think that it was really accelerated and catalyzed while I was at the University of Michigan. My friends recommended that I joined this program called Empowered, which led me to start a competition, which is a prototyping 36-hour redesign competition that really connected the computer science students, business school, and art students to create these interdisciplinary teams that would launch prototypes of smart products and then go on and sell them. And it started off pretty small in our first year and really got it right. And it's still going on almost a decade later. It's now backed by Alexa, the Amazon product and team there, Google and other heavy hitters. So it's grown far beyond my wildest expectations. But that initial inspiration to even get involved in an entrepreneurship program on campus to understand that if I have a vision, I can team up with the right people ask the right partners to support it from a resource perspective, ideation perspective, and really see it through to completion. And that was such a powerful moment for me. It stuck with me far beyond graduation and really shaped my view of what's possible in the world and what you can do in your career and in your life. So now you've graduated and you're in the early part of your career where you're making a decision about what to do next. And you end up taking a position at a seed stage company at that time called Alation and joined as the 20th employee. How would you describe this experience and how has it shaped your experience as a VC? I want to note before jumping into Alation proper, just how I even found out about Alation. You'll find that in your life, when you start something or when you create something, it'll open up new opportunities that you didn't even anticipate. So when I started Makeathon at the University of Michigan, my teammate had actually interned at Alation and told me that I would really enjoy working for the company and I learned about it. And people who know me know that things that really motivate me and what I really care about are integrity of information and democratization of access to it. And Alation, the startup, is a data cataloging company. So they are doing exactly that. They give you insight into the lineage of data. It's almost like a GitHub or a Google for the data analyst that's trying to understand what their company has been doing with their data before they even were onboarded. So joining Alation when I did was very important for me as a VC because it gave me the operating experience to take a company from end of its seed phase, early series A, to beyond a successful post-series C. Alation had raised their series C a couple years ago, and it was co-led by Salesforce and Sapphire Ventures. So it truthfully is a rocket ship. And I got so lucky that that was the first company I joined because I saw what it took and actively participated in building a company that had successful processes in place, stuck to the mission, understood what it took to build a well-oiled machine. And now I've carried that expertise into helping our crypto companies and startups build that foundation 
to take them to a successful Series A, Series B, Series C, and beyond to hopefully successfully exit an IPO. That's awesome. That early operational experience, I can imagine, is really helpful as you support your portfolio now. And I want to talk about another thing that you did during that time period, which was launch a newsletter called Token Daily. Token Daily will come up later in your career and be the central support and resource as you transition to become an investor. But what is Token Daily and how did you decide to launch it? It's that continuing theme of one opportunity presents another and you just organically flow in your life to the next thing. I remember being at Alation and I was a resident crypto expert there. So I was helping my colleagues there and friends get set up with their crypto wallets, understanding what projects were launching in the space. And I was very close to Coinbase alum. So I was able to get a front row seat to these awesome projects that were being launched. So I started a newsletter with really humble beginnings called Token Daily, and it was simply a source of information or a source of truth in the space. This was before Masari, before the blog had launched, and now there are so many great resources to better understand crypto. But at the time, you were really only looking to Coindesk and Reddit or Twitter and trying to really navigate that way. So Token Daily spread like wildfire, even though I spent zero dollars on marketing and I was intentional about not doing paid marketing because I wanted to keep our community coming in through word of mouth referrals because I wanted to keep the quality of the readership base high. This hasn't become a community at the time. It was simply a newsletter. And then I had the idea that these readers are probably going to get more out of Token Daily if they can meet each other face to face and actually see who else is part of this readership. And so I started hosting on and offline events and a community organically formed that way, conversations around what people were doing, if people wanted to launch something, people wanted to join, other companies started forming. And all of a sudden, we went from this network of information to this network of people. And that was really powerful because all of a sudden, Token Daily community members were being placed at some of the largest projects like Lightning. Their head of operations, a COO, came in through the Token Daily community. We had early hires placed at CoinList and other companies, and that was through the Token Daily community. And so that would later on, like you said, play a critical role in development of Volt Capital, but I didn't know it at the time. All I knew is that we'd created a very vibrant, strong community of readers who came from Anywhere from fang companies to fintech startups, fresh out of college, it really ran the gamut regarding who was joining, but they all were united in their common strong passion for understanding crypto in a reliable way. So you built, as you describe it, a network of information that transitioned into a network of people and really almost created the ideal scenario for any newsletter that aims to transition to community. You've seen companies launch, talent placed. How did these experiences and interactions among the community seed what has become Volt Capital? So at that point, this is at the point where Token Daily itself is a community of over 20,000 people all over the world. We were helping build out the teams of very early and later on to be very successful crypto companies. So I took a step back at that point and I thought, okay, I've created this incredible asset. 
I'm helping these teams build out their companies. I'm seeing these companies very early. Some of them were founded quite literally in the token daily readership or token daily community, or they would ask to be featured in the newsletter before they'd even raised a dollar from Silicon Valley firms. And so I was sourcing them really early, helping them build out their teams, giving them product feedback, letting them know what our users liked or disliked. So helping them on the market research side. And at that point, I took a step back and I thought, okay, I am doing all of the work that good VCs should be doing. And I wasn't really able to put capital behind these founders. I wasn't really capturing the upside as an investor. And I wanted to channel that. And one, I wanted to make it more robust and have a process behind it, do it at scale and be able to back all the founders that I wanted to back. So that's really the moment I decided I wanted to go into investing full time because remember my experience before then had been an engineer and operator. So set the stage for me a little bit. So what years was Token Daily coming into being and what was happening in the crypto space at that time? So this was about four, four and a half years ago. Bitcoin was starting to get on a lot of people's radars It hadn't been everyone's families in yet, but it was certainly the person in the family who was going to be the foray into the crypto space for them. It just started learning about it. So it was just beginning to touch the mainstream. And that really was opportune timing because it was a very fragmented industry. There wasn't a lot of heavy tooling, a lot of great, complete and thorough resources So that's around the time it started. And I would say that as soon as you see an opportunity, do not wait for the right moment to strike or to start it. Like even if it's something as simple as getting MailChimp or Substack or whatever it is and sending out a newsletter and just seeing what the response is, because you're not always going to have that time to experiment and iterate. And so I'd say don't wait until you're ready. Just go for it. Speaking of going for it, in 2019, you all decided to found Volt Capital to focus on investing in advancements in the digital asset ecosystem, as you all describe it. Tell us about how you actually went about forming the fund and identifying those partners who would invest in your fund. What was your thinking in terms of building an LP base? I do love the term digital assets. It's the institutional friendly way of saying crypto. (laughs) And truthfully, The first steps towards launching Volt Capital happened years before I even decided to start the firm. Things I was doing years before we even got the Volt Capital docs together, like angel investing, being the 20th hire at a high growth startup and scaling it to a successful post-series C, building communities where founders would join us before even raising a dollar. I mean, those are the same things that LPs asked me about and cared about during our pitches. And they were all set in motion years before we even started on the bull capital docs. And so now you all have made several investments. Help us understand your investment thesis. What are you looking for in a company? So underneath all the fluff and speculation in crypto, all of the token prices and pumps and dumps, there are strong equity defensible companies that are being built in this space that take a very long-term view on the space. They're all about bringing crypto to the next billion users. And to say our thesis 
is only infrastructure is really painting our thesis with a broad brush. More specifically, we focus on three verticals within infrastructure. So we're looking at end user services. We're looking at digital asset intermediaries and open finance. And I'm happy to dig into any of those, but that's broadly what we're looking at. I would love to dive into your investment thesis, and I'd love to start with your investments around decentralized finance. We've been hearing a lot about decentralized finance, so first I'd love to hear from you. Why should we care? Why does it matter? And what are some of the investments that you've made in the space? So DeFi itself seems to be quite the buzzword. It stands for decentralized finance, and literally... Bitcoin probably was the first instance of DeFi, if you're taking it at face value, what the word actually means. But it since has seemed to center around Ethereum and Ethereum competitors. But it's simply financial tooling that carves out a middleman and instead uses automated programs, smart contracts, etc. to execute financial services. And when you look at the DeFi market landscape, It's all the usual suspects in financial tooling. Like you're looking at leverage, you're looking at insurance, like de-risked finance plays. You're looking at credit worthiness in some instances, payments, trade execution services, all of the above. And all it is is a more efficient way to do it in a programmatic way instead of using a middleman. And of course, with this comes more transparency, more efficiency, and more opportunities for higher yields, oftentimes that are tethered with these DeFi projects. So our third leg of our investment thesis is open finance, which is sometimes synonymous or used in place of DeFi. And some investments that we've made there include Cozy, which is a risk mitigation play for DeFi, and Slingshot, which is a DEX aggregator. And a DEX is a decentralized exchange And what that does is it just does away with the centralized order book and DEX aggregators sit on top of decentralized exchanges and they're typically crawling and looking across them to give you the best price for whatever your trade is and helping you execute the trade. So those are the types of things that we've been looking at in open finance. They're all very infrastructure based. It's like, how do you make DeFi more usable is really what it comes down to. And the other two legs of our investment thesis are end-user services, which itself is pretty broad, but what we interpret it to mean are things like data and analytics tooling. There's a great company that we've invested in called Nansen that allows you to get more granular insights into what's going on in crypto. And we invested in them when they had barely any customers and they've just been growing pretty quickly. And it's a testament to how good the product is. We just really enjoyed using it. And because of how strong our Finity Forza product was, even though there wasn't much in the way of traction in the early days, it was enough to convince us that it would be huge. And so we made that investment. Another investment we made in end-user services is a passwordless authentication service called Magic. And Magic is the authentication system for a lot of crypto-native products but also non-crypto native products that are using it. And at the point where crypto becomes invisible is really when you've nailed product market fit. The last leg of our investment thesis is digital asset intermediaries. These are the on and off ramps into crypto. They're the things that make processing crypto easy 
anywhere you see something that exchanges or is converted between crypto and fiat, that's where these tools play. And a big question we ask ourselves as we're investing is, well, what does a Coinbase in every country look like? Or what does a Coinbase look like for a demographic that can't access the existing product? There are also really cool companies like The Giving Block, which is allowing and facilitating nonprofits to be able to process cryptocurrencies and accept those donations. Because what's happening is a lot of these nonprofits can't accept crypto. And crypto has allowed a lot of newly minted millionaires and billionaires to realize and accumulate their wealth. And so they want to donate to their nonprofits of choice, but they don't want to be taxed and penalized for it if they're going to convert to fiat and then donate. So the giving block solves that problem and allows nonprofits to process those crypto donations. And they're working with the number two and number three nonprofits in the country, including United Way and the American Cancer Society. That's great. I want to dive into the concept of crypto fading into the background for the user and making crypto accessible. How important do you think it is for the end user to understand the mechanisms behind the, for example, digital remittance platform they're using or trading platform? Or do you think that it's more important that the user has access and can store value and accrue value there? So it isn't really important for the end user to know the underlying mechanisms of how this works. It's certainly important for founders. It's important for investors. But similar to how you and I right now are in this call online, and you and I don't have to know how TCPIP works or HTTPS or any of these other protocols that the internet was essentially built on or that charged the internet. But because the end user service is that much better than anything else on the market, and we want to use this exact product, then we're going to use it without having to know what the underlying mechanisms are like. We just know it's going to work. And that's the important part. Same thing with crypto. We've invested in two companies. One is called Value. The other one's Bycoins. And they are serving demographics in Latin America and Africa, respectively. And what they're solving for is a problem of collapsing native currencies, largely driven by inflation in their respective regions. And so the ability to send a payment, for instance, using a product like value, which for all intents and purposes looks like a Venmo or any payments product, to be able to send money and know that by the time it hits the recipient's account, that money isn't worth half its value isn't a problem that you and I face, but it's the reality for a lot of people around the world. And so value solves that problem for users in Latin America. Bycoins is helping users in Africa store their wealth and protect it from rampant hyperinflation by giving them access to digital assets like Bitcoin. The role of crypto as a protection against hyperinflation or political instability is really interesting. And I think leads us to a conversation around regulation and the role of governments and regulation in both expanding access to crypto and protecting end users. What are your thoughts on where things are evolving, particularly in the U.S. on the regulatory front? There's this popular misconception that crypto assets aren't regulated. 
that they've been regulated since 2013. They've been on the desk of every three to four letter organization that you can think of. Firms and founders and nonprofits are pouring millions annually to make sure that crypto companies are doing things by the book. So I'm not worried about regulators coming down on crypto. If anything, in light of the Coinbase direct listing, this will hopefully put a healthy amount of pressure on regulators to finalize standards for crypto and frameworks around crypto regulation. Because if we don't figure it out in the U.S. quickly, then these entrepreneurs building billion dollar, or in the case of Coinbase likely, based on pre-IPO derivatives, $100 billion companies are just going to leave and take their businesses to other jurisdictions, and some already have. And as we think about the expanded access to crypto through a platform like Bycoins, one of your portfolio companies based in Nigeria, or Coinbase, one of the things that users of these platforms will be thinking about is how do they think about investing in tokens versus other investments. So how do you think about that trade-off and the types of exposure that people are looking at? Yeah, that's the question of the decade for crypto, or the question <laughs> of the industry, I should say. Look, we at Volt Capital largely focus on equity because that's where the strong defensible companies are being built. Tokens are very much a binary bet. You're either making a ton of money or it's going to zero. And oftentimes it has nothing to do with the actual product and everything to do with the marketing. So my view when it comes to tokens versus equity is just tokenizing is not a business model. And if you're evaluating infrastructure and you're looking at the companies that all these crypto products and protocols use or crypto applications use, the analysis you have to do is... Very similar to the analysis people were doing in the 90s and during the early internet days is you could invest in a pets.com or an amazon.com or any of thousands of dot-coms that popped up in that era, many of which didn't even use email or have any relationship to the, the internet and weren't leveraging it and taking a chance on all those dot-coms. Or you could have invested in a PayPal, which was servicing all of these companies and all of these websites and all these dot-coms and just generating transaction fees in a very evergreen manner across all these companies. And that's the bet we want to make. Like, what are the PayPals of the early internet days? What are the oracles? What are these things that are going to have, first of all, first movers advantage because they're so early and they create this kind of moat that's really tough to chip away at over time. And that's where we focus there are a lot of trends in crypto. One of the trends that has led the headlines in early 2021 is NFTs, and some stick and some don't. How do you decide at Vault Capital which ones you want to pursue and which ones aren't for you? The framework to decide whether or not something has staying power oftentimes dwindles down to, is there demand for this? Right now, even if it's small, can it grow? And I think the important part there is, is it fervent or very passionate followings or demand for this product? And secondly, do you like the product? When you use it, is it something you want to come back to or use again and again? Do you think the product is solving the problem it aims to solve or is it a solution looking for a problem? And it really boils down to those two things, which are not unlike traditional tech companies. It really is a fundamental rule or framework of investing that people are going to use it 
and you actually have tried the product and you like to use it yourself. And that served us well with regards to the companies that gained traction and really reach escape velocity is that they were companies that had an existing market or had demand from a specific niche that they were serving. And at the same time, we loved using their product. We thought it was well done. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's pretty. It just means that it had capabilities and services that we couldn't find anywhere else on the market. And we would use it in our everyday lives. And I think those are the two really important things to look for as you're evaluating an investment, whether it's in crypto or outside of crypto. I think you have such an interesting spot in this crypto ecosystem because you are so deeply connected to the retail investor sentiment around crypto, picks and shovels, technologies. I imagine you're also carefully following institutional investor sentiment around crypto. Share with me some of the things you've noticed that have changed about institutional investor sentiment, demand for wariness of crypto over the past couple of years. Yeah, the biggest one is that when you look at institutions, the biggest change is that they're finally here, right? There is a running joke in crypto that the institutions will be here in six to nine months. And then six to nine months would pass and it'd be like, it's going to be another six to nine months. And that would happen every six to nine months. But the end of last year, early this year was really when we saw meaningful movement. If you look to Tesla and you look to Mass Mutual and you look to Square's balance sheets, they all have Bitcoin on them. And this is great validation for the crypto space, though it is designed with the retail user in mind or the little guy. It's important for crypto to have a diversified user base. And so the point where these institutions are allocating Bitcoin to their balance sheets, and if you're unconvinced about crypto, you really need to ask yourself at that point, what do you know that Jack Dorsey and Elon Musk don't? I would urge anyone that's still not sold on the space to ask themselves that question. With regards to the demand in the space, we've seen tremendous momentum, but my main message to investors evaluating the space is don't get left behind. Like there's really nothing else to say than try not to get left behind. Technologies that have a passionate following that have been gaining momentum for over a decade now, right? In the case of Bitcoin and crypto that have smart people behind them, working on them in their free time on nights and weekends. These things always seem like fads in the very beginning, but that's how all great movements start. They look like a fad and almost every paradigm shift begins by seeming impossible before it becomes inevitable. And looking at Bitcoin itself, Bitcoin, the actual asset, it's really hard to say that it's non-consensus at this point, especially given institutional demand. But it will be interesting to see these other narratives like DeFi, like NFTs and beyond play out. And the institutional investors and others who've partnered with Volt Capital certainly take the bullish view of crypto and believe in its staying power and want exposure to it. How should limited partners think about liquidity in the crypto space versus a traditional venture fund? Is there any difference? And what would you advise LPs who are looking to invest in crypto funds? Crypto-based funds especially ones that focus on equity companies that plan to tokenize or layer one solutions. And by layer one, I mean like the Bitcoins, the Ethereums, like those types of protocols. They 
of course, naturally have faster liquidity events because instead of an eight to 10 year lockup that you generally see with companies that start at series pre-seed or seed and go on to IPO, instead of seeing that decade long lockup, if you will, you're seeing some of these companies tokenized in anywhere from like six months to two years time. And so that can lead a fund to be more liquid earlier on. Though I will say that the resurgence and glamorization of SPACs now has kind of even the playing field a little bit when you look at the time horizons for each, both on the equity side and token side. But as a general rule of thumb, if there's going to be a liquidity event, you will see it faster if they tokenize in a shorter amount of time and anywhere between six to two years, which generally has been the sweet spot for these projects. Based on the mechanisms of how these actual projects work and what the expectations are behind them tethering a token to it. So that's a different way to think about liquidity for these funds. And there are, of course, different structures and you can get more exotic in the way people are structuring their rounds and how they plan to tokenize. But at a very high level, the time horizons are significantly different between tokens and crypto-based funds versus traditional venture funds. I'd love to wrap up with stepping back and really looking at the global perspective that you all have at Volt Capital. You have exposure to companies based in Hong Kong, Nigeria, Colombia, the U.S. What are the geographies that you see as hubs of being at the forefront of crypto? Or is it truly decentralized and there's opportunity everywhere? Crypto is absolutely a global phenomenon, so there's opportunity everywhere. Based on where our firm is based and where I live day to day, of course, naturally, the majority of the deal flow I see is US-based, but we have made investments around the world, and oftentimes, users around the world are the ones who need it most in different emerging markets and economies, and I'm very optimistic that those markets are really going to grok like strong product market fit purely based out of necessity, really, not because they simply just like this product versus another. It's quite literally oftentimes a life and death situation for these people. There are very ripe and vibrant areas where crypto projects and founders are aggregating. Miami's one right now, <laughs> but jokes aside, you look at all the usual suspects in the U.S., but there are also great macro conditions and environmental things that are allowing places like certain hubs in Africa to be really well positioned to be the next hub for crypto development. Because you look at all the usual things that we know, like Africa has great mobile usage. So many people are mobile first for text sending, picture sending, and more importantly, payments, more importantly for crypto, of course, and more relevant. And that's great. That's absolutely necessary. But so are a lot of other countries. The real differentiator for Africa that many people don't realize is that the average age on the continent is 19 years old. And so that means there's this very young population that's just so eager to build and fix a lot of systemic problems in their financial infrastructure. And they're excited about crypto they're enterprising and they're building these companies like Bycoins to serve a real strong need. So I'm very optimistic about the future of Nigeria, Ghana, and Africa more broadly, but also really want to emphasize that crypto is a global phenomenon and it 
has to be in order for it to succeed. Cryptocurrency is a uniquely global phenomenon. According to the 2020 Global Crypto Adoption Index compiled by blockchain data analytics firm Chain Analysis, countries with the highest cryptocurrency adoption rates include the United States, China, Ukraine, Russia, Kenya, Nigeria, and South Africa. Cryptocurrencies can span continents in ways that traditional currencies cannot, opening up the possibility that crypto could one day become integrated into the global economy. Suna has been passionate about bringing transparency, access, and truth to the global crypto space. And she believes that amid all of the speculation in cryptocurrency, there are strong companies being built that are helping to bring crypto to the world. With Volt Capital, she and her team are investing in platforms that do just that. This podcast is presented by eShares Incorporated, doing business as Carta Incorporated, Carta, and Carta Ventures. The opinions of the guests and host are their own and do not reflect the view of eShares Incorporated, doing business as Carta Incorporated, Carta, and Carta Ventures. Listeners should not treat any opinion or comments as investment, financial, legal, accounting, or tax advice. The content of the podcast is not legal, financial, or tax advice and is not meant to recommend or offer the purchase or sale of a security. This podcast is informational only. The First Close is a Hit Start Media production. The show is written and co-produced by me, Jessica Strauss. Hit Start Media founder Theo Miller is creative director, with sound production by Nick Canapa and script production by Mary Kelleher. This podcast is presented by eShares, Inc., doing business as Carta, Inc., Carta, and Carta Ventures.